And to me, when the Bible describes the things that we get stuck in that we don't want to, that's a description of sin. But my realization this week, uh, looking at Joshua, is that I'm not sure that fear is a sin. And I just want to think about that together with you this morning. I think as I look through Scripture and I was digging, I tried to find the verse where it says fear is a sin. I found lots of times where God commands us not to fear, so we know we're not supposed to. It's not a good thing. I'm not preaching that. But the Bible doesn't have a verse anywhere that says fear is sin. And it brings me back a little bit to what Sally said. There are certain types of fear and times for fear where it's good for us, and Savannah too, um, the fear of the Lord, right? So, so, how, so maybe if fear is not the sin, why stay away from it? What's wrong? I think fear is a temptation. It tempts you to think that God isn't God. It tempts you to feel like everything's going to fall apart. It tempts you to feel like you can't do this. It tempts you to say, this is all just going to blow up in my face. It's a temptation for what might come next. So I want us to think about maybe proper fear, the fear of the Lord, fear of fire, fear of snakes. And maybe misplaced fears when we shouldn't have to be afraid. But if fear is this flexible word, it made me think of the anger in the same way. Remember that verse that says, in your anger, do not sin? We sort of feel like anytime we're angry, that's bad. Like, don't get mad. Don't make people mad. There's a time to be angry about something because certain things matter. They matter to God and they matter to us. And when it's not just protecting ourselves or being defensive, when it's not, you know, lording over someone else, when it's not these, when it's not reactionary, when it's not coming from our pain, there are certain things in this world that are wrong, and we should be so angry that they even exist. And if I were to name a few of them, it would just like sink our hearts, right? <laughs> Rape shouldn't exist. We should be angry that that sort of thing is a byproduct of sin. Human trafficking shouldn't exist. We should be angry that that sort of thing is allowed to exist in this fallen world, and we know that that's not, right? I mean, we want to list the things we can, and immediately like, oh, this is... We can't be okay with that, and we can't be passive about that, and we can't be positive about that. God is against those things, and we are to be too, right? So there's a place for anger. I think there's a place for fear. But fear is sticky, and it tempts us to fear the things that we don't need to, and it tempts us to be afraid of the things that God wants to do because they're too big. They're too unknown. <laughs> but what if God wants you to walk on water? Logic would say, I'm afraid of drowning. But if you really feel like God's the one prompting, then you just step out of the boat. You override the fear. You are tempted to say, I can't. But in that moment, you have conviction from God and the Holy Spirit that I need to. And so I'm going to sink or swim, just going, stepping out. Right? So I want us to just think about fear and learn from Joshua what he experienced and think about how fear tempts you. And the reason why, as soon as this thought kind of came and I started finding this, looking, like, where's the scripture that says fear is a sin? Couldn't find it. I'm like, okay, what? It started to make me feel like, what a relief it would feel to me if when I'm afraid, I don't feel like I'm sinning against God. Doesn't that take the pressure off a little bit? It's my response to that fear that God is going to look at. That's what the gospel does, the good news. <laughs> when it enters into some situation in life, it takes the pressure off. 
We don't have to feel like we have to be perfect anymore. We recognize that we're just afraid sometimes. And guess what? It's okay to be afraid. And maybe you were next to a kid earlier this morning during that song, and you turned to a kid. Maybe they said they're afraid of losing their toys or they're afraid of the dark. Like, that's okay. It's okay. We can turn on the lights when we need to. You can come into our bedroom, kids, when you're scared, and we'll give you a hug. Like, you know, like, we don't blame them for being afraid, and I don't want us to feel guilty as if somehow we're sitting against God just by having an emotion that he gave us. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Is he using it as a warning? Stay away from that. Well, then let's pray. Let's think. Okay, then let's stay away. Do we feel like actually that thing is a God thing, but we're afraid because it feels too big? Mm -mm, We're not going to stop then. We're not going to let that fear hold us back because that's actually Satan using a human emotion to stop what God might do. Joshua does impossible things. So did Moses. So does everyone who trusts in God because he asks impossible things. And fear could stop all of that from happening. But we don't want it to. We want to have faith. So read with me a couple of passages leading up to the book of Joshua, and then we'll jump right into chapter 1. Exodus is where I want us to start. Exodus 20. So yeah, there's Bibles under the seats if you want to pull them out or feel free to just listen or look it up on your phone, whatever is convenient. Exodus 20, 20. In the first part of Exodus 20, God uh, has given the Ten Commandments and Moses relates them, relays them to all the Israelites, right? This is what God thinks holiness looks like. This is what God's character is like. You can now know the blueprint for life, the way things are supposed to work, who we're meant to be. It's like this great revelation because the nation of Israel is called to be God's priest to represent him to the world. What's he like? Oh, he's this holy God that loves people and cares for everyone. And like, okay, that's what the Ten Commandments represents. Immediately after that, Moses says in Exodus 20, 20, the people are afraid, right? Moses comes down and there's thunder and lightning on the mountain. That's Exodus 20, uh, right after the Ten Commandments. And um, in verse 18, I guess we could start... um, It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. That verse 20, that's amazing to me. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid of God. God has come to test you. He's come to examine you so that the fear of him might be with you and before you so that you might not sin. Fear in that way is not a sin. God's come to show you who he is so you can see his power so that you might not sin. The fear of him will protect us. It's kind of a healthy fear. It's a good fear. And it's just like in your anger, do not sin. In your fear, do not sin. Because of a fear of God and a fear of nothing else, we can live the lives that he's called us to. So Moses obviously teaches that to everyone, and Joshua is with him the whole time. Flip over to the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. 
So Moses is trying to teach people to trust in God, but our natural tendency is just to be afraid of the things that we don't know, of the things that seem too big. And so in Numbers 13 and 14, they finally get up to the promised land, the border, and they're about to go basically a straight shot, straight out of Egypt, straight to Mount Sinai, straight to the promised land and straight in. That's kind of what God is calling them to do. But because of their grumbling, because of what happens right here when they get there, because of fear... God reroutes them for 40 years. And then still does what he's going to do because he's God, but they suffer because they just didn't trust. And so we see, even though most of us are saying the fear of God, fear of nothing else, they're afraid of everything else. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Chapter 13. So the Lord spoke to Moses, and I'm going to kind of skim, so I'll give you the verses if I jump down a little bit, because I want to go through 13 and 14 here just to pave the way for those that might not have read through it recently, just to refresh our memory. But Numbers 13, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you'll send a man, everyone a chief among them. So 12 spies. And here are the men. Uh, Sit down to verse 16. These are the names of the men Moses sent out to spy the land, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So Joshua wasn't his given name. He was renamed by Moses. Joshua means God saves. Jesus is given the name God saves. So Yeshua, Joshua, Old Testament, you deliver, take you into the promised land. Like there's, This is what God is doing. He wants to deliver his people, and he anoints and appoints the man to walk them forward. God's victory, he calls Joshua to be a part of that. So Moses sent them to spy on the land of Canaan and said, go and check it out, all right? So verse 21, they went and they spied out the land, they checked it all out, and then they brought some grapes back. And verse 25 says, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron, all the congregation. They brought back word. They showed them the fruit of the land. Verse 27, we came to the land you send us. It does. It flows with milk and honey and this fruit. However... The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, sort of a giant. You know, think Goliath. He's of this line, giants there. Verse 29, the Amalekites dwell there, and the Canaanites. Verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people. So they're getting worked up, and he, he takes a step back. Quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people. Against the people, They are far stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report. They brought the evil report. They brought the bad report. Saying, The land through which we have gone is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw of it are of great height. The Nephilim, the sons of Anak, come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. <laughs> so we seemed compared to them. So in this instance, their fear is justified. There really are giants. And sometimes in our lives, there really are genuine fears. We have people in this church right now that don't have a place to stay. Two different families right now without a home. Like, okay. What, that's a genuine giant in the land. What's it going to look like for Dodie and her husband? What's it going to look like for Paige? What are they, where are they going to find these places? Well, they can fear the genuine giants, 
or they can say, I'm afraid, but I'm going to trust God. What are they going to do with that fear? What will we do with fear? We have families in our church struggling with all sorts of things. The fear may be real. The giants were real. But God has said, don't be afraid. I will be with you. So what will we do with that genuine fear? Verse 14, all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. I wish that we had just stayed in Egypt, they say. So Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, they tore their clothes and they said, the land, verse 7, I'm continuing on, verse 7, they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through this power is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the word of the Lord and don't fear the people of the land. They are, they're like bread to us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. So don't fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appears. Skip down to um, verse... Oh, let's go to 34. I know there's so much in here, but we can't just read all of Numbers and all of Joshua this morning. So let me walk you through it quickly. And please, on your own, I encourage you to read all of the details around. But in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 34, God says, According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day you shall bear your sin, your iniquity, for 40 years. And you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I do to this wicked congregation, this gathering of people who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end and there they shall die. So the men whom Moses had sent to spy out the land, he returned and made all the congregation grumble against them by bringing up a bad report. The men who brought up a bad report of the land, they died of plague by, before the Lord and only Joshua and Caleb were alive. But when Moses told these words to the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and they went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. Like, we're ready now. We take it back. Mulligan, please. Here we are. We'll go up to the place God has promised, for we sinned. But Moses said, why now? Are you breaking another command of the Lord that won't succeed? Do not go to battle now, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord, though the Lord will not be with you. But... They presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. So everybody leaves Moses and the Ark behind, and they're like, don't worry, God, we've got this. Verse 45, Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So when God says go, we go. <laughs> but when God says don't go, we don't go. It wasn't the going or not going that was like the right or wrong. It was just following God. And sometimes we make judgments about ourselves. Well, we should do this. We shouldn't. We make judgments about other people. They should. They shouldn't. But God knows if it's the time or not the time. And obedience is the only thing that matters. And so God said, stay. And they went and they were defeated. The fear was real. The giants are real. And God was not with them. Only with God are we able 
So let's turn over to the book of Joshua then. Skip Deuteronomy, go straight to Joshua chapter 1. I want to look through verse chapter 1 and chapter 2. I want to be reminded of what we talked about last Sunday, about how the word of God is our treasure, the words of God. Whatever he says to us is like the most precious thing that we could have. It is our pride and joy. It is our guidance. Joshua hears this again. The Lord speaks it to Joshua and just asks him to take the people in. Joshua obeys, the people obey, and they overcome. So let's um, start with verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan. You and all this people into the land I'm giving you to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised Moses. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So therefore be strong, be courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong, very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success." Have I not commanded you? So be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the main point from last week. The commands of God are not like a bunch of things, don't do, you can't do, I forbid. It's like, be careful. Like, go this way. He's, they're for our good. The words of God are for our good and for his glory. So he directs us so that we may be blessed. We're commanded these things so we may be blessed, not commanded so that we may become guilty. That's where grace comes in. God is looking to help us and to bless us. And the submission, we used that word before, that's what God is asking for us. Just obey. Just follow where he's calling. All right, so Joshua commands the officers. He tells all the people, we're going to cross the Jordan River. Um, and chapter 2. So now there's two. It's not 12 spies this time. There's two. So Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they've come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I don't know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed, the dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you'll overtake them. But she had actually brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. 
For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, and whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God. He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth below. So at the same time that Israel is afraid of the big dudes, they're melting in fear because they heard that Israel has God on their side. And that's never what we think. We think we're the weak ones and the world is the strong ones. Who can we witness to? Who can we share to? What will they say? What will happen to us? We don't realize we have God on our side. He paves the way. He goes before. The world quakes in fear of God. The people of God should not quake in fear of the giants. But we don't know that. We just assume it's big and scary. They must be confident and victorious. No. God is confident and victorious. And in this case, the spies found out Oh, crap. We could have saved ourselves 40 years in the wilderness because all these people were terrified of us. When we were too scared to fight them, it would have been like a battle of people scared of each other, like slap fighting or something. Like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, they were terrified, melting in fear, not because Israel had weapons, not because Israel was stronger than them, not because Israelites were tall and muscular, because they had God on their side. And so the Israelites said, these people are tall and muscular and they have walls around their cities. God just says, well, walk around this town. The walls will fall over. Like, you know, that's, God doesn't play by the rules. And our fear sometimes stops us from just stepping in to what God would have. That's what happened. They're realizing it now. Rahab is saying, we were afraid of you. But she's also saying, I had that fear. We all did. But will you rescue me? See, what does she do with her fear? She turns to God and she asks, will you save me? Everybody in Jericho could have done that same thing but they fought against God. She's actually the wise one, the sinner. She was the one who said, I I need God. She turns, and she's the only one saved. Right? They were afraid of God, but we get afraid of people. It doesn't need to be that way. So verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. Our life for yours, even to death. Our life for yours. I love that sentence. Would we say that to the world? Would we say that to our enemies? Would we say that to the sinners? Would we say that to the people who are saying, I want God, what are we willing to give? What are we willing to give? They're willing to give their lives for hers. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So she let down a rope and they went back. Um, So fast forward with us for a little bit. Uh, Chapter 3, we're not going to read it, but Israel crosses the Jordan. God piles up the water of the Jordan River the same way that he separated the Red Sea. God doesn't just do things once. He's not only capable of doing things one time here, one time there. God is a consistent God of miracles. If you didn't realize that there was another parting of waters, read it in Joshua 3. They walk through, they memorialize it with stones, and they keep going. Um, Now in chapter 6, there's the fall of Jericho. So this is where, hopefully, we are familiar with the concept of Jericho anyway. I'm not going to read through the whole battle. But God just says, just march around the city seven times and then shout and blow the trumpets and the walls will fall. 
So they do that, you know, seven days in a row. Um, Verse 20 is the, the culmination of those seven days. Seventh time around. So the people shouted. So this is chapter 6, verse 20 of Joshua. The people shouted, the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city, and they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies, they went in and they brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and they put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 25, this is great. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. So Rahab the prostitute, her father's household, all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. So whenever the book of Joshua is finally recorded at that day, Rahab's family is like over here, like right around the corner, you know, like three blocks down, three tents down, and then two to the left, like Rahab, you know. Do you know where her family came from? You wouldn't believe where her family came from. She's one of the nation. Do you know that Rahab eventually gets married and she has a son? Her son's name is Boaz. Maybe you've heard of Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth, and they're in the genealogy of Christ. So if you want to read through Matthew chapter 1, you'll recognize that Rahab is the great, 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 however many, grandmother of Jesus. How's that for a redemption story? How's that for fear not letting her be destroyed? But her facing that fear and saying God is able and being delivered and then being this important part of this family tree through to Mary, we think. We think that the genealogy in Matthew is Mary's genealogy. How beautiful is that? She lives to this day. So if we look at Joshua and look at Rahab, we see two people who were afraid, but we see two people that turned to God in spite of their fear. We see people who are surrounded by others that were like pulling them back, like, don't, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't, but they didn't listen to the fears of the crowd. They stood with what God called them to do, and he blessed them. Joshua bringing his whole people into this promised land, Rahab bringing her family into the people of God, a salvation story and then being used by God as part of the the family history to send Christ. So as I read through this and as I thought about this, I tried to consolidate it to a few separate thoughts on fear. Some of them I've mentioned, some of them I haven't, but I want to give them to you kind of like little bullets, little truths about fear that I'd like to encourage us to think about from this passage. First one we've already talked about, 
I think fear is a temptation, not a sin. I think you can fear and face your fears and trust God through it. And you have not sinned. You've been human. And I would love for us to be free enough to turn to the people around us and say, this is what I'm afraid of, and not feel like by admitting that, we're saying we don't have faith in God. That we're falling away from the Lord. We're just afraid. But what are we going to do with that? I think faith, or fear is a temptation. Uh, it occurred to me that the greater the fear, the greater the victory. The bigger the things are that we're afraid of, the more amazing it could be if God just takes care of them. Homes, court cases, money, healing, salvation, like whatever the biggest things that feel impossible. How amazing for God to get the victory in those. So the greater the fear, the greater the opportunity for God to do something miraculous. I thought about us being kind of in this search for what mission looks like for our church. And I thought that sometimes for me, being intentional, trying to be missional can raise fears. I know that that's happened for me here as a a pastor of the church. God says, okay, I want to try something. I want to step out. And you're afraid of what will happen? What will it look like? How will we do it? Well, what am I going to do with those fears? What if the giants are real? It doesn't matter if the giants are real. The greater the fear, the greater the victory. So I don't want to fall to that temptation. We have many fears. What will we do with it? So I thought sometimes trying to accomplish something will raise the fears of why we can't or why we shouldn't. It'll kind of put us in pause. And I don't, that's not the case with Joshua and Rahab. Um, I thought that fear can either inspire or kill faith. It can actually have this dual purpose. Sometimes when I'm afraid, I'll be like the most prayerful that I've ever been because I'm begging for a faith. I want it because I can't face the giants on my own. So in that case, God uses that fear, and I use that fear to be a motivator. Like, all right, God, I know. I just have to lean into you. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? So fear can inspire us to lean into faith, but it also can undermine faith. Right? God, I don't know if you're ever going to. What if this never? What if I can't? Right? That's not leading us to faith. That's cutting the ground out from underneath us. But it's our response to it. We're being tempted, tested. The fear of God has come to test you so that that fear of him will be before you to keep you from sin. That's such an important thought. Two more thoughts, and then we'll, we'll head to communion. The kids will be coming up in just a minute. I thought that fear is really isolating. As I read through Joshua and Rahab's story, and I thought about myself, I felt like fear isolates people. Um, but community empowers people. If we are together, then I feel stronger than if I'm on my own. But if I'm afraid, I don't want to say it. So they compete with each other. I think fear and community are interrelated in such a way that if we're willing to confess our sins to one another, if we're willing to be vulnerable with one another, that that actually gives us the strength that we're going to need to overcome those fears because we're no longer alone. But Satan loves to take our weaknesses and make us feel guilty of them. 
Could a pastor ever say he's afraid of something? Well, what, doesn't he have faith? Well, what do I do with my fear? What do you do with your fear? How do we turn it over to God again and again? What if we have to do it every single day? Great. Awesome. <laughs> what a beautiful testimony your life would be if you knew how every day to just give God your fear so you didn't have to carry it. People pay therapists and others many, many dollars to figure out what to do with their fears. But then we as Christians struggle with the same things. Good. God's given us tools. We actually can just work on those tools together and share those tools with others, the Philippians 4 kind of things. Let's practice giving it to God. And let's talk again tomorrow. We'll practice giving it to God. And then let's talk the next day, and we'll practice giving it. Community is so important, and Satan would love nothing than for each of us here to quietly be thinking in our own minds, yeah, but nobody's got fears like I do. No one could really know how I feel. But if we're all thinking that quietly, <laughs> all we need to do is turn and talk to the people around us and realize, oh, we're all the same. And oh, my fear isn't my sin, it's what I'm doing with it. What am I doing?